everybody, this is Reverend Peter Watts from the RCA, the coordinator of the African American Black Council, and this is the Black Church Still Speaks. All right. Well, uh, thank you again, Chris, for uh, being a part of uh, our podcast. This is uh, this is another season for us uh, for the Black Church Still Speaks, uh, and we are, uh, again, excited to have you with us uh, on our show today. And so for folks who are listening and uh, hearing you for the first time and meeting you for the first time, why don't you uh, just give us a little background about who you are and your ministry context and, and what you've been involved in? Hey, what's going on? Uh, Chris Burton here. Uh, yes, it's an honor to be on the show, Pete. I'm so uh, grateful to be able to sit and just chop it up with you a bit and, and talk a little bit about some very, very important issues. Uh, me, uh, personally, I've been doing uh, this sort of work. And when I say this sort of work, I mean trying to understand the church's role in the work of the movement. Um, for most of my adult life. I, I, I sort of got hip to it when I uh, started as a Freedom School Servant Leader intern for Children's Defense Fund uh, back in, gosh, what was that? I don't want to date myself too tough, but it's like, got to be 2005 or so. Um, and, and just with that work, understanding then from that angle about how uh, justice really was uh, connected to education, that pushed me to go on to a seminary and, and when I was in seminary in, in Richmond, Virginia, where I recently relocated to, I started to think about what role does the church have to not just confess, but also be an avenue of repair. Um, so being uh, in seminary, then going into education, I, I taught for about 10 years, an English teacher, special education teacher, became a director of equity and inclusion at a, at a boarding school. Uh, and now working at a nonprofit where I'm able to work with organizations um, all throughout uh, the state of Virginia that are talking not just about, uh, you know, oh, schools, but also churches and, and banks and different uh, kinds of organizations that all are trying to do uh, this work in their own capacity. So for me, it's really understanding of, uh, about systems and understanding about how we're all working in concert or should be working in concert to do that work of repair that is really the sort of key component to all of it for me. Man, that sounds good. Sounds like an enriching uh, a journey uh, that you've been on. Uh, and I know that you and I met when you were doing some work with the uh, boarding school as the uh, equity director there. Uh, and so uh, it's just been really cool to uh, get to know you um, and then finding out, of course, that you were an alpha. And so for it sure. made it even better, you know, for those of you that are out there, oh, 06 and, oh, you know, divine nine connection there. And so, um, man, it, it's just real interesting. You know, we've been uh, talking about the black church and, and how the black church uh, still has uh, something important to say uh, to the to the world and to the big C church uh, mm -hmm. at large. And so, uh, you know, what I want to focus on uh, on this show uh, really is really talking about uh, race uh, in the church. And you talk about confession and repair. We'll we'll get into some of that uh, dialogue soon. But uh, when you think about the black church um, and you think about the black church's history right uh, its current reality what do you see as the future for the black church in the 21st century what what do you see how do you see its future you know interestingly enough i don't think its future is going to look that uh dissimilar to its past and when i say that in the sense of the black church has been a one-stop shop Right. Mm. You, you look at that program, you can take care of all of your needs based on that program, like somebody uh -huh. uh, within the community who, who sold some sort of service, had some sort of uh, uh, connection for you was within the, the confines of your, your church. I think about a great church um, where I'm from in Brooklyn called Concord Baptist Church that started its own uh, credit union. I think about churches that understood, you know, it's not just important for us to take care of folks during the day, but we have to have a school connected to it. We have to have a nursing home connected to it. And, and these churches that took up, all, uh, you know, speaking from the New York context, like entire city blocks mm -hmm. because of all the different services they had. I think that's what our future is going to look like, even if it isn't that physical, taking up the physical city block, 
but just a sense of us understanding that the church is not confined within those four walls anymore. Yeah. So you're going to have folks who are really um, invested in the community, invested in doing discipleship horizontally, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting, too, because, um, you know, as you talked about churches taking up uh, real estate because of the different um, services that uh, the church would offer, the church really, the black church was seen as an empowerment center. Uh, it wasn't just uh, this building that folks showed up to on Sunday morning to get their praise on. Uh, right. It was a place uh, where people, where leaders were being developed, uh, where uh, the community came uh, as a central focal point for uh, their marching orders for the week, uh, whether it was you know in the civil rights movement or uh, any other kind of movements that the church has been been involved in. And now you're saying you know you still see that, uh, but maybe it's not in the confines of the four walls of a building but you still see the black churches being the network uh, of relationships and empowerment for people uh, in the community that that's interesting and the reason why I say that's interesting is because you know I've, we got the report from mm. Barna that did a study on the black church called trends in the black church and and what the conclusion said was that uh, black folks pray more black uh, than any other ethnic group uh, black folks tend uh, a church more often than any right. other group uh, they're more faithful uh, to Bible reading in uh, right. the scriptures than any other uh, ethnic group yet, the black church is not immune to the decline. Right. What do you think that's about? Even though we're more religious, right. uh, more church going, more Bible believing, uh, yet the church is still dying. Yeah, you, you know, when you say that, brother, I, I think about a, a mother wound, right? And, and that's a, a term I, I picked up from just, uh, you know, speaking and listening to uh folks who are in the world of therapy and the folks who are in the world of soul care. And they talk about this sense of, you know, when you've been afflicted by your parent, you know, this is someone who you're looking toward for comfort. You're looking toward for security. You know, all of your needs are provided, uh, you know, ideally by that parent. And when you're wounded by that parent, whether it's through like neglect or abuse or some form of, uh, of violence that happened in that relationship, it takes a long time to really heal that. Because, the, you know, if you got beat up by somebody down the street, it doesn't feel the same way as being hurt by someone who you were looking mm. toward for affection. And, mm -hmm. I say, and I say that because I think the church, and speaking locally about the Black church, and using that language of repair that I mentioned earlier, the front lines of repair for the Black church is understanding how the Black church has been a space of pain for mm. a lot of Black folks. And hashtag uh, church hurts. Hashtag church hurts for sure. Because you see it, folks are talking about uh, decolonizing their faith. Folks are talking about all these things, but really at the core of all of that, all those things are legitimate. But what they're talking about is really the pain that's happened mm. that, to them in those spaces. And I think the church has a responsibility to number one, listen to those claims, not just dismiss it as people backsliding, but really listen to why folks don't want to come to church anymore, but also do the work of saying, how can we meet your needs now? How can we be in that space of healing? How can we turn this space that was always supposed to be a space for healing back into that more fully? I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the question and the task, mm -hmm. you know? Man, so what, what did you call it? Uh, mother it's called wound? A, a mother wound, yeah. A mother wound, a mother wound. Uh, a mother wound from the motherland? <laughs> <laughs> or a mother wound from the mother church? I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So mother wound. So, so you, you know, you, you mentioned um, the whole idea of decolonizing um, our faith or decolonizing um, theology. Right, right. Um, and uh, now you, you, you've been in seminary. You've graduated from from seminary, uh, you've got your MDiv, and you're currently in a doctoral program as well. That's right. Um, so when we think, of, let's just start with, when we talk about decolonizing the faith. Right. Uh, what, what was your experience in seminary uh, with regards to, um, um, yeah, theology mm -hmm. and the way it was presented and taught uh, in ways that might have been um, hurtful? or uh, ways in which uh, it wasn't helpful for you uh, in, say, a Black church context, even right. though 
you have, you, I'm sure you went to seminary to gain more understanding uh, of God and, and your faith and, and the church in general. But what was that experience for you? You know, when I think about that experience, what comes to mind immediately is standing in my seminary's uh, bookstore at the time. At the time, uh, looking for books for my, my class, it had to be like that first, if not second semester, definitely first year of seminary, but either spring or fall semester, I can't remember fully, but knowing that I had the whereabouts to say, why is it that every book that's about me, something that I can take back to like the church community that, that nurtured me, is only for the elective course. Mm. And any book um, that really I would have to decolonize or, or work through, those are in the, the main required courses. And, I, and it struck me and it, and it angered me at that time because what I took from that and I ended up challenging the, the, my school community about was what we're saying, the implicit message we're saying is that someone can get a sound education from this institution matriculate, get meet all the requirements laid in the in, in uh, by the registrar's office and never have to learn about black folks ever. Mm. And that that seemed to me like a, a a great miscarriage of justice, not just for black folks there, but also for you know our white contemporaries who would continue to just, you know have this very, very, you know, I, I'll never forget uh speaking to one classmate who was really, and, and not from, as far as I could tell, from a place of malice, but really trying to position the sense of like, well, it all worked out for, you know, Africans who were brought here because they found Christianity here. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at them like they had three heads. Cause I was like, we didn't need slavery to find Christ. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was like, that say that again. Say that again. <laughs> we did not need slavery to find Christ. And, and, and so I say that not only I thank God, number one, that I came from a church context where, you know, my church went in a, uh, you know, my church as a kid went in a complete opposite direction where it wasn't a matter of like, you know, me having to decolonize my mind from pictures of white Jesus. Like the Jesus in my Sunday school class had dreadlocks. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't remember what company that was, but they used to make like the Sunday school posters and everyone was black in the Bible. Like it's probably, every, probably what Urban Ministries uh, uh, Inc. I think that's right. You and I, yeah, that's right. That's, uh -huh. that's what's up. Yeah, so that was what um, laid my foundation. So I never had the sense of, oh my gosh, I need to like decolonize my faith because my faith was brought to me in a radically hospitable way. Mm. And, I, and I think that that made me never, where I saw some friends of mine who grew up in different church contexts eventually leave the faith, I never felt tempted to in that regard because mm -hmm. it wasn't brought to me as this, you know, white supremacist thing ever. That white supremacist understanding of Christianity was a later adult confrontation I had, but wasn't something that yeah. was at the foundation. You know? Yeah. Our podcast is primarily listened to by folks whose background is in reformed theology. Mm -hmm. um, these are uh, black folks who are part of the reformed church in America, who are mm -hmm. pastors and leaders and deacons and elders and churches and congregants. And then, you know, then you have others that are listening, uh, maybe coming from some other, um, you know, other Protestant uh, stream. Sure. And so when we think about reformed theology um, and we think about the whole idea of God's sovereignty. Right. There's an argument that says that God used slavery. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is. To bring Christianity to black folks. Right. Although it wasn't um, right. They make the argument saying in God's plan and foundation right. for the world and you know, right. God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, you know, you, to me, it's something wrong with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, it's, it's, oh, go yeah, ahead, yeah. So, yeah, let me let me get your thoughts and I'll just share. I'll share a piece of what I thought. Yeah, I, I think it's an abusive understanding of like all things work together for good. Right. It's a very <laughs> abusive uh, interpretation or, or very abusive exegesis on, on that because. And I call it abusive because 
I think it's not taking, especially from a reformed lens, the notion of, you know, human brokenness and, and human sin very seriously when you say that, right? Yeah. Like, like if you look at slavery or enslaving someone, exploiting someone as a sinful thing, and when you're using this sort of logic to say like, well, in spite of this, you're starting to, even if it's not intentional, right? Mm-hmm. You're starting to say like, it's not that bad. Like, even if you're not really saying that explicitly, um, you, there's a notion of it that's like, well, you know, as horrible as it was, look at this good thing that came out of it. So therefore, the logical conclusion is it couldn't have been that bad. Mm-hmm. Number one, I don't think people, when they say these things, take sin very seriously. I don't think they take God's sovereignty very seriously in the sense of like, in spite of the horrific nature of this sin, that this sin could not interrupt God's plan, right? That mm-hmm. God's plan was always to, uh, you know, bring us all um, close to, to God. I think about uh, my image of God as, as presented by Jesus in the Gospels where, where the Lord describes himself as like, you know, a mother hen wanting to like hold the chicks close, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think if we take that understanding of God seriously, there was nothing that was going to interrupt that plan of holding yeah. God's children close. But I think ultimately people don't really understand how sinful slavery is or they disabuse themselves from that. But even more critically in terms of like our national discourse, people have no desire to know or are just willfully ignorant about how horrific slavery was. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've seen the few collective, the collective we people have seen a few films. Maybe they saw Roots back in the day or 12 Years a Slave more recently. And it was easy for them to just put it, put it in this place. But, you know, it, most historians who are serious about the, the, the scholarship will tell you that if you were to make an accurate film about slavery, you couldn't release it in the movie theater. Mm. It, it, mm. Would, it couldn't be R. It'd be like beyond mm. NC-17. It'd be too much. Yeah. Be too graphic. So I think because of that, people have this very sanitized understanding of that horrific act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we uh, unpack this then uh, and start talking about, you know, switching gears and start talking about, you know, race in the church, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you brought up two words of confession and repair. Right. I've heard a lot of people talk about what is the pathway you know, forward to reconciliation or what's the pathway forward to even reparations. And, mm-hmm. and so what, what, what would you say uh, is the pathway um, from beginning to end? What, what is it that needs to happen to, to get to repair and restoration and reconciliation and those kinds of things? Well, something I, I bring up a lot with my work um, with the baddest consulting um, and, and with my work, I, intentionally and i expand at times but i intentionally work with christian schools and 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 christian organizations because i believe that we have to be the ones as as followers of christ to model this well to make this a replicable thing it's almost if you know we're we're living through a pandemic right so it's, it's like trying to uh create antibodies or trying to create a vaccine off of something that has been a part of the disrepair for for far too long. And so what I talk about in that work for um, the baddest consulting is how confession is the start that you can't, and that shouldn't be something too uh, foreign to us as, as believers, this understanding of you can't say, I'm sorry, unless you admitted you were wrong. Right. You, you, there's no need to try to say, oh, I need to confess something if you or I, I need to fix something unless I'm noticing that something was broken. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about confession is the start, I often get a lot of pushback on that, because especially when we're talking about race, the natural inclination is for a lot of people to say, like, well, that wasn't me. Like I, you know, my family wasn't here during slavery. There's some sort of exit ramp yeah. people try to take. And. I push back, especially when I'm speaking with Christians, because I, I talk about the sense of corporate prayer that's modeled throughout um, and corporate confession that's modeled throughout the scripture. Right. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, when uh, Moses came and was chastising all the people, the Israelites 
for the golden calf, someone raised their hand and said, like, I had nothing to do with it. I was over here. <laughs> taking right. sheep. No, they all <laughs> were held responsible for what happened. And I think we have to get back to that understanding of, you know, you talk about capital C church, like taking that seriously, mm-hmm. like all of our responsibility, we have to do this together. You know, So that confession is the starting point, which it sounds simple, but it's the hardest part for a lot of people. Just admitting complicity is very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And so once once there's this uh, understanding of a confession, do we then move to, what do we move to then next? Yeah, so then you look at your sphere of influence because people attempted to just jump straight into the repair. Uh-huh. Right? I can see a burning building and my inclination is, I need to just run in there. But if there are firefighters right here, mm-hmm. I need to play my part and get out of their way. Me running into the building and is now just, I'm just another person the firefighter has to save now. So mm-hmm. I, I use that analogy in the sense of a lot of people, especially when you come into like the savior complexes, the guilt complexes, where people start to think like, oh, here's what we need to do. We just need to find a black church to start talking to. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, like that's, not what you need to do necessarily. Like if you weren't having good relationships with folks, it's going to feel very fake. People can see you a mile away coming. Yeah. If you're now you just want to talk to them, like, hey, you know, MLK Day is coming up and we just figured we'd have a service together. Like that's fake. That's not real. You're not trying to actually do life with people. You're trying to feel better. It's, what, so, my, uh, it's what my millennial and Gen Z children call performative acts. Super performative, exactly, exactly. Shout out to all the TikTok listeners. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it's very, but it's so performative and, it, and it's fake, and no one, it's 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 not going to last. And I mm-hmm. think if you're looking and, and honest about what you um what your resources are, so I think that's the next step is really talking about understanding what your resources are and aiming them toward repair. Mm. rather than aiming them toward disrepair. And so that can be an honest account, an honest audit of all the things that you do. And looking at them now through the lens of, are these actions anti-racist or are they white supremacists? Mm. Are these racist actions or are they anti-racist actions? These, this has to be the lens of it. So that's everything from your, your innocuous bake sale <laughs> uh-huh. to, to who gets to, um, who, who, uh, you invite to, to preach, like all, all of the things, what scholarships are, is the uh, church giving out? Like every single activity that you do is either racist or anti-racist. There's no real neutrality. In it. So hmm. now, you, now you have the opportunity to really look at it and say like, how can I aim all of our activities towards repair rather than towards the disrepair that racism causes? So can you kind of speak to that a little bit more? Because there are some folks that are listening who... Uh, are on this journey, and I'm talking about our white uh, siblings uh, that may be listening, and uh, they have uh, been going through this process and this journey of of confession and and admitting and and then you know saying you know asking for forgiveness and 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 they're ready to uh, engage in some way, but a lot of times they'll say, "Well, we don't know what to do next." And so you just said, "Okay, what you need to do is you know." take an audit of your resources and everything that you do as a church community and then decide whether these activities are, are, are racist or anti-racist activities. So can you give an example of something typically just in general that a church does that could be considered racist uh, versus something that a church could do that would be considered anti-racist just in general? Sure. So I, so I think um, uh, an example of that is, the way that their churches use mission. So mm-hmm. a church may send, you know, I won't pick a country because that will sound like I'm, t- I'm sending subs to someone, but like yeah. they, may send, they may send a mission group overseas while neglecting problems that are happening within their own locality. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, you know, raise funds. So my whole uh, youth group or whoever the group is can fly overseas and, and spend a week doing whatever activity they do and not address, you know, that community across the tracks or the, or the, the problem that's happening within my own town that disproportionately affects people of color. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that in and of itself, you have to start to ask like, what's the point of the mission work? Is it just so 
the kids can say, like, I've been to this country. And what's the use of that? Is it just for their college essay? Like, mm-hmm. why, why, are they, why are we doing this activity? Really scrutinizing it, really auditing it. Like, why is it important for this activity to happen? Why are we not doing local ministry? And yeah, some may say, oh, because we don't have any relationships with them. Why don't we have relationships with them? Like, there are, you know, there's obviously undoubtedly some um, of our white brothers and sisters who live in towns that are hom- homogenous, right? So by asking that question, like, why is that? Like, I think there's always, essentially what I'm trying to get to, brother, is that there's no exit ramp if you're being serious about this work. Mm-hmm. And really asking those questions, because I think it's too easy to just say, like, well, we tried, but there's nothing we can do. Uh-huh. And, and that, that despair becomes very seductive. That sort of fatalism about like the problem's just too big. I'm not asking anyone of us to solve the entire thing. That is too much. But I'm asking all of us to do our part because that's what I believe the Lord is going to hold us accountable for. Like, how did we use our talents mm-hmm. to, to be a part of the repair? Gotcha. So, so that, that's a, a great example. And we see that all the time. So, can you just help me understand a little bit uh, more uh, the, and for folks that are listening, like how do they, what lens can they look through to determine whether the acts that they're doing in the world or in the community is either racist or anti-racist? How, how can you, how can we help them uh, filter that, those decisions? Yeah, I, I think it's really a critical question. Number one, that, to continue to ask, I think it's something that you can't just treat like a checklist to say like, oh, figured it out. We're anti-racist and that's some sort of static thing. All of these things are dynamic. So it's really important for us to continue. Like, I, I think in the same way that you hold yourselves accountable in other regards as an organization or as an institution, you just make this a part of your rhythms, right? Like you create some sort of uh, diagnostic for it. You create a sort of audit for it where you're really looking at the various compartments of your organization and seeing like, what are we doing in this regard? So when we talk about like, is the organization like racist or not? I I think it's very um, simple to talk about, number one, whose land you're on, Mm -hmm. right? Like who used to live there, right? Uh Because the church wasn't there since the beginning of time. So just simply asking like, what was there before? And what was there before that? So really just getting to the root of it. So you won't have to go too far far before you realize like at some point some sort of uh abuse happened or some sort of exploitation happened right now what has the church done in light of that abuse in light of the exploitation if the answer is nothing then you can stop right there and start to um chart out how you're going to be a part of the repair yeah but if it's something where um your your church and your organization uh is looking at the the contemporary issues as well it's as simple as looking at the relationships you have um, with people who aren't like you, right? Especially mm-hmm. if you're um, in a position of power. Are you only interacting with black and brown folks when they're working in facilities or when it's Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month? Is it only when you're um, doing some sort of uh, service trip, like you're opening a soup kitchen and that's when non-white folks are within the, the uh, walls yeah. of your, your house of worship. If, if that's the case, then you have a serious uh, question to ask because think about the message you've sent, not only to the children who are in your church, but also to yourselves. Like what subliminal message do you have about people of color based on the ways in which you've interacted with them over years? You know, mm-hmm. and I, I think if you're, um, not asking that question honestly, then I'm not certain you want to be a part of the repair because I think that's one of the key aspects of it. Are you willing to be um, in service alongside or take orders from or listen to um, be humble when you're in partnership with people who are not white? Is that the work that you're willing to do? That's that's a huge part of the, um, or I'll argue the lion's share of the work for sure. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask the same question 
uh, for predominantly uh, black churches, um, brown churches, um, uh, churches uh, that are you know, Asian churches, uh, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. Because um, I always say I wake up every day trying to be more anti-racist. Now, that yeah. sounds strange coming from somebody uh, of African descent, no, sure. African-American. Why would I say? Because I think that there's still some stuff in me that oh, I yeah. learned and was indoctrinated with in you know, grade school, seminary, sure. and just living in America that made me uh, racist in right. some ways. Uh, and so uh, what, what is it that, uh, what, what would you say to black churches um, that, and black folks that are listening here to this podcast of what it means for them to be uh, on that journey of being an anti-racist as well? Yeah, I think, I love that question because I, I think it's important for us to confront that internalized white supremacy. Mm. I think that's a critical aspect of it. Um, why, you, you know, you, you may have heard about this, this mentality that black folks, we sometimes have of like the white man's ice is colder. Mm-hmm. You know, where we're, like it doesn't yep. matter if, you know, so thinking about that um, in terms of like the vendors we, we may use, Mm-hmm. Like, are we giving each other business? Or are we like, oh, you know, I, I can't call Peter on this because, you know, he, he, don't, he don't show a blade and mm-hmm, you know, it's, not, mm-hmm. it's not right. Like, well, whatever right. little things we have, like, why do we, um, you know, quote Malcolm, like, who taught you to hate yourself? You know, like, it's yeah, as, simple, yeah. as simple as that. I, I think we have such a rich opportunity. And, and folks, I'll tell you this, a lot of folks are taking this opportunity outside of the church, unfortunately. But it is an opportunity to really understand the importance of Black folks loving themselves. And I think there's a window there that we can say, like, yes, we love ourselves because God first loved us. We love ourselves. We see each other and we don't see neglect and negative stereotypes because we see the image of God in one another. I think there's an opportunity there to really emphasize that, that that we need to take more advantage of. Because to your point, Every single second spent in America, in the United States, is one in which you're inhaling internalized white supremacy. Every single second. So how are you taking the time to be conscious of that and saying, no, regardless of what these negative images or like what my zip code is saying to me, whatever the situation is, understanding that like we're not that. We're not these negative images that are being pumped into us. We are so much more than that. How can we inculcate that in younger people to have a sense of strengthened understanding of dignity? How do we make sure that we give each other dignity within our, our, our church and within our homes? I think that's the important work of being like conscious of it, not denying it, but also making sure that we're emphasizing the dignity, emphasizing the love for one another, emphasizing the love for yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And that's good. You know, I... um. Uh, often think about uh, the work that I'm engaged in now uh, in my denomination uh, mm-hmm. as the supervisor uh, of advocacy and race relations. Um, part of my role uh, in my team uh, that I have, uh, part of our role is to uh, really identify uh, core systemic issues um, in our denomination and help the denomination move forward to becoming um, a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. uh, future free from racism, albeism, um, uh, uh, or ableism, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and, and being uh, you know, gender-specific around, you know, the whole idea of toxic masculinity and, yeah. um, and having women be uh, free to, to flourish in, in their callings in ministry. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, uh, you do a lot of work and have done a lot of work around uh, DEI. Um, yeah, for yeah. those that are listening and never heard of that term, DEI is a term that, uh, from from my understanding and research and background, started really in the education world around mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so now there's a lot of organizations, whether they be nonprofits and churches and denominations, that are now looking at uh, DEI as part of that anti-racist work that uh, organizations are doing um, around the country. And so can you kind of talk about DEI and what it is and the purpose of it and and why it's important? So what is it? What's its purpose and why is it important? Sure, sure. So um, I remember first encountering DEI work as a student um, in high school. I went to um, private school in Brooklyn for for high school and middle school. 
And so I remember my uh, high school had a diversity director. And, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, you never really knew what they were up to. You know, maybe there was like a bulletin board once in a while that was put up. And then they were really a really cool person you could talk to. But uh-huh. like, <laughs> it was kind of that sort of thing. Um, and it's been interesting to see the evolution of it from that point where it was sort of, you know, this office that was tucked away within yeah. the school's organizational chart to now, you know, if you type in DEI on any job search uh, website, there are hundreds of organizations looking for a DEI. It seems person. like every organization has a DEI office or department. Right. Every single one. And, and it's been also interesting to see on the, on the school side of it where uh, DEI has continue to evolve where you're seeing some schools also talk about justice and mm-hmm. belonging, right? So like obviously the D um, being diversity, E, equity, and I, inclusion. And I think about it, especially through a Christian lens, ultimately you're talking about hospitality, right? Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean not just to keep people there? Because I think that's what diversity was for a long time, especially mm-hmm. with it being in the education space. But I think this translates to like churches and works, um, places of work as well, in the sense of it just feels good to have that, like if you imagine like that yearbook photo, but like for the church or for your job, whatever it is, you take the picture and it's like white faces and black faces and Asian faces and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Latino faces. Like it just feels really good to take that kind of picture, to be a part of that picture. Yeah. But what is it saying in terms of retention? Mm-hmm. What is it saying in terms of, you know, that person can actually thrive in that space? So you're talking about it with church. This is a this is a, um, the kind of church where a family is going to want to, or, or someone who doesn't have a family is going to uh, come and, and want to spend years there, like spend life with you all. Like, what does mm-hmm. that mean? What does it mean um, for people to feel like they belong, that it's not just like they always feel like a visitor uh-huh. being grafted onto something? but that they truly are a part of something, truly are welcomed into it. And I think that's the hard work of, of DEI and, and justice and belonging work because it's understanding your identity as an organization as something that is dynamic. It is mm-hmm. not written in stone tablets, like henceforth and forevermore. It is yes. something that has to continue to evolve if it wants to survive, Yeah. right? Like, I, I feel bad for the person who owned the biggest horseshoe shop when the Model T came out, right? They had to switch it up or else right. they wouldn't be able to do what they do anymore, right? So you have to have that same understanding as an organization, which is to say, if we're really going to thrive, and this is what I, what I tell a lot of folks, is that DEI work has to be mission critical to your organization or else mm. you just won't be around anymore. Mm-hmm. because we're seeing that this is where it, it's heading. And, and, and thankfully for us as, as Christians, this is something that you can see, oh, I'm able to do the Lord's work through, right? It's yeah. not something where uh, saying that you want to be um, equitable and inclusive and pursue justice and belonging is something that's going to uh, be antithetical to understanding who, who Jesus is. If anything, it's an avenue through which you can further understand who Jesus is because we know throughout scripture that God values hospitality a lot. Yeah. And if you're an inhospitable person, that is something that deeply offends God. So I think we have to have that kind of understanding of how we move through the world. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you know, hospitality and I think about radical hospitality yes. um, and within uh, our department uh, of advocacy and race relations, we have a training arm that we call equity based hospitality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, uh, so can you kind of, uh, you know, speak to uh, what does it look like for a denomination or, or a, a church um, that may historically have been racist or yes. uh, operated with white supremacist uh, kind of principles um, and, and characteristics to now have having to uh, switch or change uh, the way in which it operates because the world has become more diverse. Uh, people are waking up to uh, history and, mm-hmm. and their involvement uh, right. in uh, in things that were horrific in the past. Um, the, the land that, that these churches are on, right. uh, they're starting to recognize that there were uh, uh, indigenous people uh, right. that were removed and then there 
there were African people who worked the land and mm-hmm. they were reaping the benefits of it, even though they did not do it themselves. Right. Uh, and so, uh, so as a denomination like like the RCA is becoming uh, more and more multi-ethnic and multi-generational, and uh, yeah, how how does a, a denomination that's the oldest denomination right. in North America become this Revelation seven nine? kind of mm-hmm. denomination yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. when it comes to just the hospitality, just the hospitality piece, the equity-based uh, hospitality, you know, aspect of DEI. Yeah, I, I think there's space for a denomination like this in the sense of understanding that God's love is redemptive, right? Like there's mm-hmm. some folks who can see, you could, you could like list out the rap sheet of the denomination and list out like all the horrible things that have that have happened and it would not be too much for God not to be able to use that denomination still. You know, like I, I think that sometimes we, and I, I localize it to a sense of how people treat themselves with relationship to God, the sense of, you know, I've done too much or I got to get myself right in order to be used by God. And I think that um, a denomination like this has all of the tools in place to be able to say, you know what, we're really going to be committed to this work wholeheartedly. Because mm-hmm. I know that God, God is interested in, in the redemptions, like that turnaround, like people going f- like full force in one direction, full force in another direction. So I, I think that the, the first step in it is really seeing, once again, that sense of understanding what we do, really being introspective and understanding like what do we do that really defines us? How can we optimize these things in a way, so let's say, for example, uh, RCA was a denomination that took uh, education very seriously. Like mm-hmm. you sent, I keep uh, using the example of you sent X number of kids to um, college with a scholarship. You sponsor X number of seminarians, so on and so forth. The X number of seminaries, whatever, whatever the situation is. How can you use those instruments rather than inventing something new that you're not that. Uh, familiar with, but using the same tools and same instruments now say, we're going to purpose this to make sure we see a deficit. Maybe we don't have this particular uh, demographic in, or maybe it's one of those land acknowledgements that you just spoke about. It's going to say like, we're going to be sure that with every one of our churches that are on um, a specific uh, tribal groups uh, land, we're going to do some active repair toward that, uh, toward that group. So for example, I see for, um, the city of New York is uh, raising what they're calling like land acknowledgement rent. So if you recognize Mm -hmm. like, oh, we're here on the land of the Lenape people, we can pay X amount of money to this organization that takes care of Lenape people. So it could be something where you're taking your resources and aiming it toward repair, toward a specific group that's been affected Mm -hmm. by the disrepair that previously was there. So it's really just about interrupting cycles ultimately is how you're able to really demonstrate that sort of hospitality that you're speaking of. Interrupting cycles. That's good. That's good. And um, what uh, what could uh, churches of color, black churches, brown churches, Mm -hmm. um, Asian churches, uh, with regards to um, moving the ball forward uh, in this work, what 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 would their responsibility be in this work? Number one, I'm, I'm going to say talk to each other because mm. I, I think that you know when we're talking about anti-racism and we're talking and I've said white supremacy several times throughout this, we don't acknowledge the ways in which we have we have been inhospitable towards one another. Speaking about non-white congregations, so like talking about black folks and Asian folks, Asian folks with, with, with uh, Spanish, I keep New York guys, I'm about to say Spanish people, New York with Latino people and, and just thinking about the ways in which uh, we haven't extended the hospitality towards one another. Having mm. those honest, um, painful conversations about ways in which we have to love one another better. And mm-hmm. so how do you use those uh, resources collectively? So it's not just something where, you know, uh, you may have a Korean church and an African-American church that barely speak to one another and they're not too far from each other. How can they now use their resources together to be beneficial and to be a blessing, right? Mm-hmm. How, can you, how can you ensure that um, 
all of the churches are thriving through a, like a collective understanding, not just a sense of like, it's just about me and my church that I go to, but understanding that we are all together in this and that we're all going to thrive together. I think that becomes an opportunity for it as well, because something that I didn't mention earlier, but I think is critical with this is understanding racism, understanding uh, white supremacy as a form of economic violence. I would mm. almost argue primarily so it's been economic violence. So how do you mm. interrupt that cycle of economic violence? You start to understand like, I may not have all the resources in and of myself, but if I combine my resources with your resources and that person to your left resources, we're able to do something together better than we could separately, you know? That's good. That's good. That's good. And so um, when we start considering uh, this work um, that we're engaging in around DEI um, and we consider the role of the, the black church uh, historically that has always been in the forefront of these movements um, right. when it came to race and right. white supremacy. And, um, but then we also know that there's some internal work that the black church has needed to do uh, around uh, toxic masculinity. Oh, for sure. Uh, as well. Uh, and so what do you have to say to the black church in and of itself around these issues of uh, hospitality, um, equity, mm-hmm. around diversity, around um, uh, uh, hierarchical uh, structures that right. uh, primarily benefited men? Right. Um, you know, within the church structure, what, what, what do you say, what is, what is that work of DEI even within the, the black church context? I, I think what comes to mind, brother, is the need for intergenerational discourse. Folks have to speak to one another. You have young folks who are very, very passionate mm-hmm. and, are, and are on the front lines. When you, when you think about those uh, protests against the murder of Breonna Taylor, those protests mm-hmm. against the murder of George Floyd and, and, and countless others. We've seen so many young people on the front lines. You see uh, older folks too, but a lot, a lot of young folk. How, how, how would it look for them to be in honest conversation with their elders? Not one mm-hmm. that's filled with resentment, not one that's filled with like a sense of you don't understand or you've never been through this. You know, something that always comes to my mind, uh, was I was leading a, a conversation with former students of mine, and one of my students at the time said, you know, I really think um, they were a Gen Zer, so they were saying, I, I really think that our generation is the activist generation, like we're the uh-huh. ones. And I, I lovingly said to them, you know, John Lewis just died a couple of months ago. Like it, like it ain't that long, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, to, yeah. To, to really think of yourself as like the ones when, you know, the Diane Nashes of the world, you know, the Bob Moses of the world, like all these people who, who came before us, like they're not ancient history. Yeah. So what would it look like for folks who, for black folks who are younger to talk to their elders and for the elders to talk to young people and not just dismiss them as like, oh, those millennials, those kids, they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Because yeah. I think there's still an understanding of like millennials or everything from like five years old to 35 for some reason. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I, I think if we have that intergenerational discourse where we're saying like, look, I want to learn from you and I want you to learn from me as well, that can lead to a lot of repair that we need to do within the black church. Because I think a lot of folks stopped listening to each other and gave up on one another. We can't afford to give up on one another. Something else came to me, you know, we were talking about uh, white supremacy and racism. Can you kind of uh, distinguish between the two uh, for people that may be at the ground level one-on-one in this work? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Around, you know, with definitions of things. Because sure. so we throw these terms around um, and not really understanding what they mean when we're saying them. So can you yeah, distinguish between those two real quick? So, so the definitions I use... Um, with the baddest consulting uh, essentially asserts that racism is about power, that you cannot be a racist without power. Mm. Right. So you, one could be a bigot. And when I say bigot means like a hateful person, you could mm-hmm. stand on your corner and say like, I hate that other group of people, whatever they are. Right. No, no matter what makes them different from you. But if you don't have the power to affect not just their life, but the life of their group, then you can't be a racist. So to give you a concrete example, like I could be scared in a parking lot 
as a white woman is pulling into her car, uh, getting out of a car, we both can be scared of each other. We can be terrified of each other. It's 2 a.m., scary night. And I can say, you know what? I have decided that out of my fear, I am going to call the police on her. Right? I think she's a dangerous person and she needs to um, go to prison or something. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm just terrified of her. I want, I want the police to come here. And she can have the same feeling. But what we've seen throughout history in the United States is that when I do that, it's more likely for me to get myself into trouble calling the police on a white woman. Mm-hmm. When that white woman is calling the police on me, she's actually able to access the state to deal with me, mm-hmm. to get rid of the threat. So anytime someone's able to access the power of the state, that's what allows something to be like a racist thing. Because I think we've often conflated a sense of like, Bigotry and bigotry, I want to say, is an awful thing. It's not something that it's like less bad than racism by any right. means, but it's about a matter of being able to exercise the power of the state. So you're able to say, like, you know, state sponsored violence, or you're able to say, like, you all can't live in this neighborhood, or you're able to say, like, I don't want you to go to this school, I don't want you to build your church on this land. Whenever you're able to exercise that level of power from the state to um, finances, that's when we're talking about racism. Mm-hmm. And racism is, is in our context, not dissimilar from white supremacy because that has been the group that has been able to access racism in our particular context. So mm-hmm. white supremacy is just the belief that like things that are quote unquote white are somehow better, just mm-hmm. regardless of what you're speaking about. It extends so far to the practice of like bleaching rice and, <laughs> all, yeah. you know, like all, all these uh different food items and, and car items, all these things that we've just assumed and, 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 and conflated a sense of like perfection or goodness with whiteness. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything that is pure, uh, anything that is good and righteous always uh, was associated with something that was lighter or yeah. whiter um, right. you know, in terms of just the physical color. Yeah. And, and, that, and that existed before race was invented. Yes. You know, like where people get mad, especially when they're deconstructing, they'll say like, why are y'all still singing that song that Jesus will make you white as snow? It it had nothing to do with like the skin color. It was an understanding of things being white as what you were just saying, the sense of like pureness or purity and and so on and so forth. But it was that understanding that people hijacked and said, you know what? We are white now and Mm -hmm. they are black. Because before Mm -hmm. people were considering themselves black, Black just always just meant something awful or evil. It, was, it never necessarily meant people. Like when mm-hmm. you talk about like the Moors, they were dark in complexion, but no one was calling them black. But if yeah. someone was a, a, a quote unquote evil person, but oh, that person has a black heart. That was the language that was hijacked to um, help give birth to racism. You know. Yeah, and that's why I like the work of uh, Dr. James Cone so much. Yes. Because he took that, um, and when, you know, when he was doing the uh, liberation theology, mm-hmm, it was like, mm-hmm. okay, is God ontologically black, theologically black? And right. you go to Genesis and say, in the beginning, the world was dark and void, and yes. out of that came life. And so <laughs> it was, it was like he was flipping the script, saying, okay, yes, you want to use black as this negative thing, but I'm going to tell you, theologically, there was. <laughs> nothing that happened unless there was darkness first right right and so and and that i think that's the piece you know when we talk about deconstruction um and deconstructing theology that uh that i get excited about personally oh yeah around my studies and and around you know understanding scripture and and being able to you know articulate those thoughts and ideas uh and transfer those things to to folks as we're talking about race and racism and white supremacy yeah Uh, uh i think one of the things though that um that I've seen and and as folks are now talking about this whole deconstruction piece mm-hmm. um, is that uh, the fear is that we're going we're to have a whole lot of black folks deconstructing their faith all the way to the point to where they are going to become unbelievers. Oh yeah. 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 So what's the danger of deconstruction? What What's the, the, the flip side of this whole deconstruction, uh, you know, talk. Yeah, no, it's, it's, Wonderful question. I think people have to hold on to Jesus throughout the deconstruction. And that's the the danger of it is when you start to associate all the things that white supremacy lied to us about who God is with Mm. God, God's self, you know, like Mm. I think when, when you are saying, 
while this painting of uh, that Michelangelo did of Jesus is not actually Jesus, so therefore Jesus is not actually who, who Scripture tells us Jesus is. I think when you're making that sort of leap, that's the danger of it. Mm-hmm. Um, creating a sense of origin story or, or, or a genesis coming only from Europe. It, it's laughable, honestly, the amount of times you can see on any social media platform people who you can tell they really think Christianity started in Europe. Yeah. And, and they really, and they're just like convinced that it's just like a quote unquote white man's religion. Mm-hmm. And if that's your starting point, and we saw this with the, the rise of like the nation of Islam too. Like that was a big yeah. selling point of this. Like, no, we're not going to celebrate this white man's religion that was only given to us through slavery. But if you're able to do the work that a lot of um, folks have, like comes to mind, like the Jew three project, for example, like yeah. a lot of folks who, are doing the work to show the ties of scripture uh, and, and, and our understanding of who Jesus is to the continent and understanding um, how important, not just like as a like side part of it, but like, like a central uh, portion of like the, the journey of Christianity has gone through Africa. I think if we took that seriously, we can still do all of the healthy deconstruction, but it wouldn't become something that would just, you know, you're just unraveling the entire mm-hmm. faith. And I think that's right. the danger people are running right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, even going back to our earlier conversation about Reformed theology and um, and, and the argument that uh, it need, we needed slavery in order to find Jesus uh, is just a false nomer just historically because yeah. even before slavery, folks knew uh, Christianity knew who Jesus was in Ethiopia and Nubia mm-hmm. uh, you know, long before uh, slavery. So, so really did not need slavery. Not at all. Not at <laughs> so, all. <laughs> so that, that debunks that, that argument uh, right, right off the, right off the top. For sure. Um, as we close out and is there, what, what's a, a, a last word of encouragement that you can say to the folks that are listening? Black, black people who are part of predominantly black churches and then um, our white uh, siblings, uh, brothers and sisters uh, who are listening that are looking for answers um, of, uh, and things that are practical in order to, to move forward in getting to that place of repair. Yeah. I, I would, I would say uh, to my black brothers and sisters that there is so much work that we're standing on top of already. That, that understanding that we stand on the shoulders of giants is very real. I do believe and I cherish the cloud of witnesses that has come before us to understand that as difficult as the work is ahead of us, that we've gotten this far because people held on to God. We've gotten this far because people understood that regardless of what folks were saying about them and the conditions that they were forced to be in, that there was something greater, that God had more for them. And so I don't want us to ever let go of who God is or what God is uh, saying to us in this moment. I feel like this is uh, another great paradigm shift that we're getting ready to live through if we're not already here. Um, I I think that God is doing something great um, in our church, and we need to just like be steadfast and just hold on because this is definitely a marathon. And, and I think that word also applies to my white brothers and sisters who, you know, this may seem exhausting. You may find yourself unable to uh, unsee that which you've seen, but know that this work as costly as it is, is worth it. That it's much better to have this difficult work than anything that seems, you know, much more comfortable, but also much more shallow and ultimately empty. So just really be willing to 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 be cost costly minded about it. Be willing to be because um, to consider the cost and say, you know what, God is calling me to interrupt. I don't want to just be complicit with the things I've seen going on and going on, even if it benefited me on the surface. It ultimately won't benefit me because it's something that isn't good. So just understanding that aspect of it and saying like, Lord, show me how to be a part of the repair. I don't want to be a part of the disrepair any further. And and just hold on because they're, they're once again, you two stand on the shoulder of giants. The folks who are white folks who understood that the way things are set up is not right and dared to, to break the cycle and, and paid dear cost for it, but it was worth it for them ultimately. So 
I just invite you to, to, to be a part of the solution in that regard. Amen. Well, thank you again, my brother, for being a part of uh, this podcast uh, for today. We want to thank you for your thoughts and wisdom uh, in uh, moving the ball forward uh, when it comes to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and what that means uh, for the church uh, in particular. And so, uh, yeah, thank you again, man. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So this is uh, Reverend Peter Watts with uh, the RCA, the Supervisor for Advocacy and Race Relations, also the Coordinator for the African American Black Council, and this is the Black Church Still Speaks podcast. We had Chris Burden of the Baddest Consultant uh, Agency uh, with us this morning to talk to us uh, about uh, the Black Church that still speaks on race and racism uh, and around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. We want to thank our guests for rocking with us today. Now, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. I said our because this podcast is not a one-person show. There are some folks in the background who make this happen each month for our listeners. I want to give a shout out to our sound engineer, Garrick Steyer, logo and graphics by Warrior Design, our executive producer, Annalise Ratcliffe, and our assistant production manager, Lorraine Parker. I'm your host, Reverend Peter Watts with the AABC, and this is The Black Church Still Speaks.